Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to another edition of the Rabona Podcast. I'm Ryan Hunt. Still no Musa Okwonga in the studio or Michael, but Michael will be joining me on the phone very shortly to discuss this week's Champions League action and a little bit of Bundesliga action from the weekend. I'm going to discuss the title race between Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund. And later in the programme, I'm going to be joined by Tim Stillman, who covers Arsenal women and is also a columnist for Ars Blog. We're going to discuss Arsenal winning the Women's Super League last weekend. A quick reminder before we get going, if you do listen on iTunes, please give us a rating and a review, preferably five stars. It helps us grow the podcast. And also, Monday, we will all be back here recording our 50th podcast. Musa's back from his travels. Michael will be back in Berlin. So make sure you tune into that. But first... On the phone to discuss this week's Champions League games, Michael De Silva. Hey, Ryan, how you doing? I'm all right, thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Still, um, we're still apart. <laughs> yeah, hopefully for not too much longer. I know. It's so <laughs> quiet here in the in the studio on my own. <laughs> that'll change. That'll change when Moose is back. I, I know. I was just. I need that laugh back in my life. <laughs> I can try it if you want. Maybe we'll save it for an outtake. <laughs> so let's talk Champions League. Yeah. Let's start in yeah. Barcelona, maybe. Yeah, where else? It was a weird game because somehow I feel like Liverpool, you can make a strong case that they deserved a draw from the game, but they've ended up losing uh, 3-0 and... It looks beyond them, to be honest. I can't see that being turned around. And there's just one guy who's who's won it for them. I mean, Suarez, his first goal was superb, by the way. And Jordi Alba, the pass for that, they just cut Liverpool apart. But yeah, I mean, f- to go from 1-0 to 3-0, it's all about Messi. I think Liverpool would have would have taken 1-0 and Barca yeah, really didn't look that great for Barca's standards I think but this is what they do under Valverde this is it like they lull you into that full sense of security like they're, they're far more pragmatic under him than any, I think any of their previous coaches certainly in the last 10-15 years there were some stats that came out that obviously Liverpool had more passes more possession more total shots and they had a couple of really big chances near the end as well was it Salah hit the post? Salah's chance to to at least cut it to 3-1, that was a huge and I think that will come back to haunt them. But you know Barcelona had their own miss right at the end as well. It was a tragic miss oh. from Dembele. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this Barcelona, they're more comfortable not having the ball. It was pointless ever trying to continue that tradition once Iniesta and Xavi have left the club. You know, they, they have to reinvent themselves. They have to find a new way of playing. And they're a team that are comfortable chasing the ball. But when they win it, they're, they're still just as devastating. Yeah, I saw a tweet that was quite interesting, though. It said something, um, I forget who posted it, so apologies. But it was said something about how I think the average age of this Barca side is approaching 30, which I think is quite an interesting observation because... A lot of people still view every single Barcelona performance, especially in Europe, comparing it to those Pep Guardiola sides. So actually, this Barca side can't press as relentlessly as they used to. 
which is why I think you saw periods of the game where they sat a little bit deeper. And like you said, they were quite comfortable without the ball. And I think Valverde made a really good switch in terms of bringing Samedo on and moving Sergio Roberto into midfield. It seemed to... Arsene Wenger actually said this on Being Sports. Um, he said that that seemed to give Barcelona a little bit more solidity in the middle. I, I love that. I love the Wenger quotes actually on Being Sports where he just said, I think it was Musa actually who tweeted it. Um, he, he said, Mr. Messi came in and said, let me finish the job now. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Messi. He's so respectful. He, he is, he is. He's, he's a great pundit. But you know, one of the signs that Barcelona are, are different to three, four, five years ago is that Messi barely had a touch in the second half until he scored the second goal. Yeah, He was really, really quiet. And I think at that point, I mean, he had a good first half, but at that point, Liverpool were probably thinking, or you would forgive them for thinking, okay, well, maybe we've got him where we want him. But, you know, this is a team that just need to get him the ball once and he can do the rest. Yeah, there's definitely something about Messi where he his movement has become really efficient over the last three or four years, mm. where he's quite happy going without the ball for quite a while in order to just scan his surroundings, see what's going on. And I think he's really good at figuring people out, kind of works out the weaknesses almost mm. in real time. And then yeah. you see him tend to ramp up his activity and then obviously you know he got that kind of a bit of a scrappy goal for the second but then the third one the free kick mm. which was I don't think I can't remember seeing a free kick like that and this may be completely revisionist <laughs> but I think in terms of context scenario and obviously it being his 600th which has nothing to do with it obviously because not many players have scored 600 club goals but well that's it in 683 games by the way yeah which Staggering. maybe we'll get onto that in a little bit because I I want to talk about that a bit <laughs> but I mean when Sid was on the podcast a few weeks ago we were talking about this was just after Messi had hit that amazing free kick at Villarreal and it came the week after or the game after it was the same week I think that he'd had that incredible chip free kick where he kind of dinked it over the wall as well and the variety in his free kicks well this free kick was like the trajectory of it really struck me it was like it it was hit and it stayed hit as they say it was just like continued <laughs> like accelerated like in the air it looked like it brushed joe gomez's shoulder ever Could slightly done, yeah. but even so it was so minor that yeah, I don't think it affected it too much. But yeah, well, I think as Gary Lineker said, it it just stopped it from going completely in the corner. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, if you think of how far this is out, it's very rare that a keeper of Allison's quality will get beaten by any free kick from that distance. Yeah, well, this is it, and it's it's not just the quality of the free kick, which is completely world class and one of the best free kicks you'll see from arguably the best free kick taker the game has ever seen. Janinio might have something to say about that. Um, <laughs> I going to say, James Ward-Prowse is getting yeah. really angry. <laughs> Sorry, James. Uh, but the, yeah, it's the, it's the circumstances being able to, the difference um, between your and, and Messi is that he's able to pull that kind of free kick out of the bag at that specific moment when it really matters and that taking it from 2-0 to 3-0 takes it from an uphill task to nearly an impossible task for Liverpool um, and, and also yeah and also you could you can totally see Barcelona scoring at Anfield yeah so that's it that's it and you can't see Liverpool scoring four. So another thing, by the way, that struck me about Liverpool's approach to Messi was 
uh, Van Dyke. I saw him on more than one occasion, like gesturing to his, his teammates to help him out. He was one-on-one with him a couple of times. The other Liverpool defenders were just terrified of him. And when a player of Van Dyke's quality is, is saying that, you know it's uh, you know it's a different task. Well, they seem to I adopt think... this tactic in the first half where they just crowded him. And every time yeah. he got the ball, there was three or four players around him. And it, if he could get out of that situation, then Barcelona were away. And actually, a lot yeah. of the chances they had in the first half came from situations like that. But I, I was actually really really impressed with Van Dijk again mm. Mm. Um, although yeah, I was too although there was the first goal he could have done a bit more I think um, yeah I agree I think he, he was he was slightly at fault for that goal but I meant it's specifically how he defended Messi there were times yeah. where Messi broke forward in that kind of pocket you mm. know centre of the field kind of in between the halfway line and the penalty box that's the kind of sweet spot in terms of panic I think when Messi gets the ball in that position and he's running towards goal it's you see teams literally freaking out yeah yeah and I thought Van Dijk did something really interesting which is probably because of this stat you know about him not being dribbled past but he just dropped off he he just never committed he just kind of Mm. um, almost defended space as opposed to Messi yeah, that's and I true. Think yeah, that, he, he he was comfortable pushing him back. I noticed that a few times that he was. Yeah, he wouldn't necessarily win the ball, but he was just getting him further away from goal. Uh, I mean, that doesn't necessarily limit the damage he can do. But let's face it: there's no way to stop the guy. No, he's the greatest player the game has ever seen yeah. by by some way. And can I go? A little bit hot take. Well, it's not hot take. We don't we don't really do scorchers on this podcast. But <laughs> but I'm in a in a way I'm so pleased that Messi's 600th goal came so soon after Ronaldo's mm. because there was a lot of talk about this at the weekend and Ronaldo has made 600 goals before Messi, which is obviously anyone scoring 600 club goals is mind blowing, mm. completely mind blowing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Ronaldo is a, an unbelievable goal scorer, and I've always thought that the you know football's a team sport, and every now and again, when there's these great individuals, yes, you can debate who's the better one, but it, it always felt a bit frivolous to me. I mean, if you are going to go down the route though of of making that argument, who's the best of the two? There's no. Well, I just think there's there's no point even even getting into it it's clearly messi there's no doubt um ronaldo i think rivals messi in terms of pure goal scoring but that's about the only area where he can compete yeah definitely and i think this is the thing where it's you know messi's got 600 goals in 683 games which is i think i wrote a tweet about it this morning just saying just look at that for a minute 600 goals in <laughs> yeah, 683 games yeah. And for someone who isn't just a goal scorer, yeah, exactly. it's just completely so, mind-blowing. It is, it is. He offers so, so much more than just goals. Yet, if you just look at his goal-scoring figures, how many players in the in the history of the game can compete with that? A, a handful. To be able to score, have an almost one-in-one goal-scoring ratio throughout your entire career at a club like Barcelona, it's, it's, it's really, really amazing. And, you know, when he was starting out, those kind of figures were just unthinkable. Yeah, and I think um, also, I think, you know, I mean, he done it in, he's done it in 118 less games than Ronaldo. Mm. And I think in terms of this comparison stuff, I think we just maybe are guilty as football fans of oversimplifying the the tiers, if you like. Messi is so far out ahead of his own. And then Ronaldo is just operating in his own space as well below that. And then there's a huge gap between the rest. That's not to say that the rest, you know, the, the best of the rest, so Neymar, Mbappe, whoever, are like below 
the qual- like the quality they should be or something. It's just that those two players are just extraordinary. Well, this is this is the thing. This is this isn't normal. Yeah, I think that what Ronaldo and Messi have achieved has completely skewed the expectations of elite level footballers. It's going to take a while, I think, to see or to kind of accept the norm again once these guys are done. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think uh, we should expect Mbappe to do anything that any anywhere close to what Ronaldo and Messi have achieved because it would be unfair. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I just can't get yeah. my head around it. It's just if, <laughs> if I think about it too long, I can't. I can't focus or do anything. But, but one thing, one thing that should be said as well about. Messi at the moment is that he's playing in a Barca team that are perhaps a bit more dysfunctional. I mean, they still are a very, very effective team, but they're not like the slick operation that they were under Guardiola um, or an ex- to an extent Luis Enrique as well. Messi's performance just is always, always consistently extraordinary doesn't matter who the coach is who his teammates are yes he hasn't really done it for Argentina but there's a whole other set of reasons for that I think the Argentina argument is just such a I just don't think it's even remotely valid yeah yeah I mean does he have to win a World Cup to prove how great he is no if if he does then by that logic Olivier Giroud is better than Lionel Messi well I didn't want to mention (laughs) that but Um, do you know what actually you mentioned something there which I thought was quite interesting about the fluidity of this Barcelona side and maybe a nice little segue the team I think who have replicated that vibe more than anyone else I've seen recently was Ajax especially the first I think the first 20 minutes against Spurs on Tuesday Hmm. there were moments in that where I just thought this is Barca 2011 (laughs) it was relentless it was you could feel the panic kind of spreading through the stadium and through the players and it could have been a lot worse but from a Spurs point of view how are you feeling post the first leg well firstly as as a neutral um, I wasn't a neutral, but if I was, I would have been disappointed with that game. It was attritional, <laughs> let's just say. Yeah, I agree with you that Barcelona, uh, Ajax was showing Freudian slip. Ajax was showing similar qualities to some of those older editions of Barcelona, obviously much earlier in their development. But yeah, if they were to keep all of those players together, which they're not going to, they would develop in two, three years' time as the best club team around. And that's why. De Jong and De Litt and all the others are being snapped up. From a Spurs perspective, it was as I expected. I thought a 1-0 or a 2-0 defeat was was what was coming. Losing Kane is big, but they can survive without that. Not having Son and then crucially not having Sissoko, it was always going to be too big of an ask. I think Spurs owe Pochettino for switching up the tactics, bringing on Sissoko when Vertonghen got injured. That allowed for a tactical change and Spurs improved dramatically. And that's not just because Sissoko is an accomplished player, but because Spurs, I think, were able to deal with Ajax's runners better with a four-man defence rather than a three. The tie is open, you know. It could still go Spurs' as well second leg. I don't think it will. I think Ajax are going to score and I think they're going to make it really difficult for Spurs. And there's a lot of pressure on Son. Everyone's saying, well, Son's back and Son's going to do this. Son's, you know, Son's not messy. He's, <laughs> he's not Superman. I mean, he can... He is capable of turning the game, but Spurs shouldn't rely on that. And yeah, I mean, if I was going to put my money on it, which I'm not, I would say uh, I would say Ajax will will sneak through. Um, one quick one before we move on: Vertonghen had a really scary looking injury. 
I wanted to see what you thought about it because it's raised a lot of questions about concussion protocols and stuff like this. Yeah. And I actually thought that uh, Mathieu, the Spanish ma- referee, who gets a bit of a hard time, I think. He's he's <laughs> kind of like a, a... He's he's referred to often as the Spanish Mike Dean. Um, <laughs> but I thought he handled the situation really, really well in terms of mm. when he stopped the game to double check, come over and double check with the Spurs staff that he was okay con- to continue, which... You don't really see a lot of refs do that, actually. Mm. But then Vertonghen did come back on and lasted, what, 30 seconds, a minute, tops? Yeah. And then yeah. seemed to kind of not collapse, but he had a real real bad turn when he got carried <laughs> off. Yeah, it was worrying, wasn't it? It was and really not nice to see at all. Yeah, and Spurs, I must say, have a bit of a checkered history in this area with Hugo Lloris as well. A couple of years ago, a game at Everton, Lloris took a big hit to the head and was allowed to continue after receiving the basic neurological checks that are required on the, just off the field. But, you know, when the adrenaline is pumping in a big game like that, the crowd are cheering, it's easy for a player to just say, no, I'm fine, let's patch me up and I'll carry on. In my eyes, I think that there should be a blanket rule that when a player has taken a hit to the head, as serious as that, when there's blood and when the player's clearly unclear about his orientation that he should be substituted just as a as a stand matter of course um we saw it with christoph kramer as well in the 2014 world cup final mm. for germany he took a massive hit to the head he was knocked out and he even asked is this the world cup final yeah what score is it yeah is it- what's the score and it's easy to just be like yeah it's the world cup final mate come on get on with it mm. yeah it's <laughs> but- super it's super serious i think it's something that i i'd like to do a bit of a, an actual focused episode on at some point. Speak yeah. to some people who have kind of worked in that field because there's been quite a, a big push to raise the awareness and the seriousness that this has taken in football over the last mm. few years. And I still think football is a million miles away from a number of other sports on this front. Yeah, exactly. Well, the NFL, I mean, it's a, it's a different sport. The number of potential head clashes are greater and, of course, the players wear helmets. But they introduced a 24-hour lockout in the NFL for any player that has suffered this kind of injury. And I do think that a change of culture is uh, is required in football. It's a lack of awareness, and I do think that that is slowly changing, but it didn't look good for Fatongan, and something has to change, I think. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll do a bit of a roundup of some other stuff before we speak to Tim. Sounds good. Okay, back from the break, we're going to quickly talk about the Bundesliga, which I'm going to whisper this. It's the best title race around (laughs) at the moment. It really is. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually trying to write a piece on this at the moment about how actually the the contrasting title races between the Premier League and the Bundesliga and actually which one's the better and why. But more drama at the weekend just gone. Yes. I mean, do you want to take it? Well, firstly, I think the Bundesliga um, title race is, is more exciting than the Premier League. You know, if if City win their remaining games, they won the league and they shouldn't have too many reasons. To think that they're not going to do that. Germany is completely different. Bayern are leading by two points. They drew their last game with Nuremberg in crazy circumstances, last minute miss penalty for Nuremberg. And then even after that, a potentially even bigger miss chance by Kingsley Coman at the very end to win it, which would have been deeply unfair on Nuremberg. But anyway, Bayern are two points clear after Dortmund dropped points in the Royal Derby. But Bayern's remaining three games Firstly, they play Hanover, who are bottom, so they'll at home, so 
you'd expect them to win that. But then, crucially, they're away to RB Leipzig. And then, after that, they're home to Eintracht Frankfurt. Two really, really difficult games against two of the teams that will be in the Champions League, most likely for from Germany next season. But the Leipzig game especially, that is going to be so so huge for this title race and Dortmund beat them 1-0 when they played in Leipzig but it was a such a tough game I was there for that game and it was just it was just decided by one moment by a Witzel strike and Bayern are just not they just don't seem that convincing um and I could easily see them slipping up in that game or the game against Frank, uh, Eintracht Frankfurt the week after the last game of the season. I do think it's going to go down to the last game. I hope it's, it does. It's thrilling, though. The fact that it's gone into May for the first time in years, I think, is, uh, is a good one. It's usually done and dusted by the end of March. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I was at the game. I was at Dortmund Schalke on the weekend and... I mean, Dortmund just imploded. They kind of really yeah. lost their discipline. They started really, really well. And there was a sense that this was all going to go fine. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, they ended up losing the game 4-2, two red cards, which, uh, I mean, Royce will miss the next two games, so he will be back for their final game of the season, which is away in Gladbach. Yeah. Marius well, Wolf's out he... for the season, basically, so he's he's got three-match ban for his red card, and he will not play again. Yeah, um, I mean, that's that's more of an inconvenience, but whereas Royce, I think, will be generally missed in the next two games against... Well, Bremen away, um, followed by Fortuna Dusseldorf, and then, of course, that game that you said away at Gladbach. I do think, though, that Dortmund will get... Uh, basically, I think both Bayern and Dortmund are going to drop points at some point, but I think Dortmund will drop fewer points, and I think that they might just edge it. Oh, I can't call it, man. I just... It's so... <laughs> it's because... I mean, I wrote a piece for the Rabona site, if you've if people haven't read that yet. Check com. It was my first time at the... Best Valen Stadion and I was a bit kind of wide-eyed so as well as a piece about the game I kind of wrote a little bit about what it was like to be there but it just felt well I, I said in the piece it was by Saturday night it was done and then Sunday it was back on again and yeah. Lucien Favre in the press conference afterwards basically conceded the title he said yes yeah. yeah, is it's basically done and, and you would expect Bayern to 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 win against Nuremberg and have a four-point lead at this point but yeah I mean Nuremberg how, are basically down shows you how bad both teams have been actually in the in the final well not bad but just unable to to clinch it well i think this is the in- really interesting thing about the bundesliga title race compared to the premier league is that the premier league top two are operating on a level never seen before mm. in terms of a top two the thing that's really interesting about the bundesliga is that you've obviously got two of germany's top sides who despite being so good on their day are still deeply flawed yeah and it's just making it completely impossible to call no and it's it's a really really compelling um title race but you know for me you know if you're going to watch any any final three games of the season then make it the bundesliga because it's it really is a uh, a thrilling finale yeah there's this 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 kind of scientific perfection of the premier league compared to this kind of just wild f- west like <laughs> deeply troubled artists of the bundesliga who you know they're so brilliant but they're always the last one at the bar you know just being like oh, like oh you know so deeply flawed but so you know so genius on their day yeah um, so endearing but yeah i mean dortmund really really need to win it this season i think because i mean i, I actually think that uh like we've said a number of times they are a little bit ahead of schedule and next season is the real gauge for them yeah 
Yeah. It looks like they're going to get Torgan Hazard coming in, which I think is a really interesting signing. Yeah, he's basically going to be a replacement for Pulisic. If you're a Chelsea fan, you should be concerned about his downturn in form. It's been it's been worrying. Um, I think Torgan Hazard will offer more in terms of not only his contribution to the play, which was is on a similar level to Pulisic, but I think he's, he just will score more goals. And I think Dortmund need that because they don't really have... I mean, they've got Paco Alcacer. He... Is not really um, doesn't start every game. Royce has his his issues with injury from time to time, and then that just leaves Jaden Sancho, who's been superb, but he's not an out and out goal scorer. So, I think Hazard will be a, a big addition to that team. And as you say, I think next season could be really the time that Dortmund set down a new standard that Bayern have to meet. And it, it, a lot of it depends on who Bayern sign in the window as well. But you know, I've said on this podcast before that it would be. It would be a bad thing for the Bundesliga if Dortmund were to have their best season in seven years and Bayern their worst in seven years, yet Bayern still win the title. That would be the worst possible thing that could happen for the neutral, for the league. And yeah, I'm by no means a, a Dortmund fan, but I think it's what the league needs. Yeah, definitely. Um, elsewhere in Germany, quick one. Wolfsburg won their sixth Frauen-Pokal finale against Freiburg, and I think they're fifth in a row. And they can wrap the double up this weekend. Another nice. double for Wolfsburg. We'll have to get our resident Wolfsburg uh, expert in at some point. So. Well, yeah, I was going to say there's going to be, you know, our resident Wolfsburg ultra, Musak Wango, was <laughs> celebrating on his travels. Also, a quick one before we wrap up and let you go. Um, really sad news. I think he's okay, thank God. But he could see us suffering a heart attack in training. Yeah, Porto. yeah. I think the whole footballing community just, you know, was uh, taken aback by that one. I mean, thirty-seven years old, peak of physical fitness. It just kind of shocking that that could happen. Yeah, I mean, he posted a photo and said he's okay. You know, I mean, I'm not going to speculate as to whether he'll play again, but I mean, thirty-seven <laughs> years old, achieved what yeah. he's achieved. It might be time. Glad he's all right and sending yeah. all our best to the Casillas fam. Indeed. Yeah, um, I echo those sentiments. Cool, man. Right. Well, we'll leave it here and we will all be here on Monday, right? Looking forward to it. Yeah. The gang's back together. Reunion <laughs> <laughs> uh, tour. Yeah. Uh, have a good weekend, man, and we'll see you Monday. Thanks, Ryan. Okay. I'm delighted to welcome to the Rabona podcast writer for Ars Blog, covers Arsenal women and also he has a weekly column on Ars Blog. Tim Stillman, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. At the weekend, just gone, Arsenal women wrapped up the Women's Super League title away at Brighton in front of a record attendance for a Women's Super League match, I believe, at the Amex. Yep, certainly was. You've been a... Well, I, we were talking before we recorded, you previously known as maybe an Arsenal women ultra, now an Arsenal <laughs> women writer. So yeah, yeah, I wanted to see from your perspective how this title win compares to previous title wins. Obviously, it's been seven years now since they last won a title and a lot's changed in women's football in England. Maybe a little bit of context for those who aren't aware of yeah. how the season panned out as well, because it has been really tricky for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This this to me is undoubtedly their best title win ever. You know, they won it a lot in the kind of 90s and early 2000s, right up until 2012. But to be honest, they were the only ticket in town yeah. um, for a lot of it. They were pushed close a couple of times and then Fulham went professional in about 2001, 2002. So for about two years, they kind of took things over a little bit, but that all folded and Arsenal were out on their own again. So for Arsenal to do it, 
now with the level of competition from Chelsea and Manchester City. Chelsea, the you know, the same afternoon that Arsenal were winning the league, Chelsea were pushing Leon all the way in a Champions League semi-final and nearly made it to the final. And had they done that, um, they probably would have been favourites for the final. It's just they bumped into Leon, um, who are undoubtedly the best team. So, you know, and Chelsea finished third in the WSL, mm. um, and so that gives you an idea of the level of competition. And as as you kind of alluded to, it has been very challenging because Arsenal have had loads and loads of injuries in November. Jordan Nobbs ruptured her cruciate ligament, which was you know a disaster for her because she's going to miss the World Cup. But you know a bit of a disaster for Arsenal because after Miedema, she's our our best player. So to to lose her at that stage, you know, not even halfway through the season, uh, at a point where Arsenal were just playing amazing football and. I think I'm right in saying since about October, they haven't been able to name a full bench for a single game um, because of the injury situation. So that kind of puts it in a little bit of context as well. But what they've done basically, I mean, because of the injuries, they lost a game to Manchester City. They lost a game to Chelsea. There are only two defeats, and that was when the injuries were at their absolute height. They had to start a 17-year-old away at Manchester City who'd never played before. So... But what they've done is they've not dropped a single point to anyone other than Chelsea and Man City. They've just beaten up on everyone else. Their goal difference um, after 19 games is plus 56, which kind of tells you what they've been doing this season. But that said, they should. It shouldn't have been seven years. There's there's kind of um, I think because of men's football, there's a bit of a there's a kind of old Chelsea and Man City have just spent. Um, and that's why Arsenal haven't won the league. And that's true to a degree, but Arsenal have spent just as much as Chelsea and Man City. They haven't been left behind financially. And the the analogy I always make is Arsenal women are a bit like Manchester United in the men's game. Like They're not left behind financially. They they just didn't quite get things right for a few years, but, but now they very much are. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think that was down to, I wouldn't say professionalisation, but I think maybe mm. other clubs such as Manchester City and Chelsea raising their game to such a degree. Because yeah. when I grew up, I think we we're probably around a similar age, like early mid thirties mm. and yeah. Arsenal women were always the dominant force. And mm. do you think it maybe caught them off guard a bit or, yeah. or just because they could, I don't want to, you know, undermine the achievements that happened during that time frame, but they could yeah, yeah. sometimes walk it. Yeah, yeah, no, they really could. And yes, um, and the club privately admit that and admitted it at the time. Um, in a, probably in about 2014, they they were caught off guard by Chelsea and Man City, and maybe there was a bit of complacency there because they thought, oh, we've seen this before. Fulham tried this, but you know, it's a bit of a different level. And um, I, I remember speaking to Alex Scott in about 2014. And, and you know, she she told me quite honestly that she was considering her future at Arsenal because they were caught a little bit off guard. But they reacted very, very quickly because there's, you know, there's a point of pride with Arsenal with their women's team. It was, it was very much a case of, right, we can't let this happen. We can't just become a faded force and fade into the background. We have to catch up here. Yeah. Um, so they, they, you know, they had a bit of transition. A, a lot of the really, really successful players kind of turned over. The league was relaunched and changed. There was lots of turnover, lots of transition. So it's kind of understandable for a couple of years that they didn't win it. But for the last three to four years, they've always had a squad capable of it. They've always had the investment. They turned into a cup team. They won a cup every year in this kind of seven-year period. 
but they just weren't consistent enough to win the league. But since the manager, Joe Montemoro, came in at the end of 2017, they've got that now. They've got that consistency. And and like I said, they, they beat everyone outside the top three this season twice, yeah. and most of them by big scores. So they, they've just got that that little bit of confidence and that little bit of swagger back. And I think, frankly, they're just the manager's kind of befitting um, of a team that wants to be at the level that Arsenal want to be at. You've read my mind and nicely segued because I wanted to talk about Joe. Mm. You've obviously spent a bit of time with him being around mm. the team, especially over the last season. He comes across as basically just a really good dude. I mean, you kind of alluded to it there, but what has been his impact that he brought in? Because Pedro Loza was quite highly regarded, I think that's fair yeah, to yeah. say. And, yeah, yeah. But, he, but Joe Montemora seemed to just really take them to another level over the last especially the last season obviously but since he arrived yeah yeah absolutely Pedro is one of the nicest men you'll ever meet he came with a big reputation because he'd worked with uh, Roberto Martinez mm. and and actually I think I think the um that they're very very similar in that Pedro I think there's an amazing coach in Pedro but I, I feel like he tried to overcomplicate things at times and be a bit too clever, okay. uh, maybe a bit like Roberto Martinez <laughs> at times. And and you kind of and I, I really like you can't like not get on with Pedro, so I really felt for him when it kind of didn't work. But I, the thing is with Joe, so he's he's very Australian. He's very like <laughs> you know he's he's very um, affable, talkative, and. You know he's he's really he's really got away with people, and it's really obvious from from the absolute start. You know, and he'll he'll you know he'll shake your hand and talk to you and and look you in the eye and say your name, and it like you know it makes you feel a bit a bit. But even like you know, I I talk to him you know perhaps once a month or something like that. But he, even then, just you know, it's like oh he rem- he remembered my name <laughs> and and everything, and you know he, he's just got like a, a really nice way with people. And I I think the best way I could describe it was um, I think Danielle Vanderdonk gave an interview, not with me, but with someone else, and and she said he's somewhere between super lazy and super focused, which, which I really liked. And I, I think what she meant by that is as a person he comes across like almost diffident, just super laid back. He's just created a really stress-free environment in that team. He really trusts the players as well. And he kind of says, look, this is the way I want to play and I trust you to do it. And I trust you also to make your own decisions. And um, one of, one of his big quotes that he uses time and time again in interviews is he says like formations are for football journalists. They're for newspapers. He kind of says, um, you know you start with a formation but really it's about in the moment when you've got the ball and you know you're in the opponent's half I mean what is the formation really and and so he puts a lot of trust in the players tactically Um, but the other thing he's done that you know as well as creating this kind of stress-free environment he he bought in um last summer and i think this is a really underplayed part of it all he bought in a guy called uh, aaron dantino from australia as his assistant manager and aaron dantino as well as being a qualified physio and fitness instructor he was a video analyst at melbourne and uh joe and the team put like a really really big emphasis on video analysis yeah and um, and watching opponents and and he changes formation. He, you know he hasn't changed the players a lot, but he changes formation depending on who he's playing. And what, the point it really struck me was I spoke to Dominic Bloodworth, one of the players, after they played Lewis in September, and they beat them nine nil because the teams are just poles apart. Mm. 
and you know Dominic Bloodworth was talking about how they'd watch videos of Lewis and you know she kind of said yeah and, and we identified this weakness in them and I, I thought wow like you didn't need to do video analysis to turn up and roll Lewis over <laughs> like and that's why I think it's so important at this point that they haven't dropped any points they shouldn't have because they really look at other teams and they really study them and they take everyone seriously, which possibly Arsenal haven't done um, for the mm. last few years. So on one hand, you've got this really relaxed guy who makes you feel good and takes the stress away. But on the other hand, is is super focused on the detail. And, and it's, it's, it's a really, really nice balance. And, and I, I know that, um, that every, pretty much everyone in that squad just absolutely loves him and loves playing for him. Yeah, every time I see one of the players interviewed or, and they mention Joe, it just seems to be the same thing. Yeah. Almost like a company yeah. line, really. It's, it's so universal. Um, yeah. But actually, that squad, you've been around or you've kind of been close to many squads or many evolutions of this mm. Arsenal women's squad. How does this compare in terms of a, a vibe compared to the rest? Because yeah. there just seems to be something really unique there. And I'm I'm wondering mm. whether that's me with my Arsenal hat on looking at it or whether there is something genuinely unique there. Even the players that have come in recently like have seemed to gel really quickly, even the ones that yeah. got injured really quickly. Yeah, what's what's your take on that? Yeah, yeah, big time, and 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 you know what? That was exactly you know the words you used, vibe. That is exactly what was missing before. The talent has always been there, but I think sometimes there's been a sense of you know maybe like a bit of a loss of tactical identity or identity as a team. Or um, you know, I've spoken to Leah Williamson many times, uh, and she always talks about you know getting that fear factor back, the fact that we're Arsenal and people should be scared of us, and that might have been lost, but it really hasn't now. And there there were a couple of players there who've improved so much this season, like Katie McCabe and Danielle mm. Vanderdonk, who prior to Joe being there felt lost. Um, and this is the exact word they used. They 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 were lost, um, you know, in football and at Arsenal. They didn't really know what their best position was, what they were supposed to be doing. And it, it became a, maybe a little bit aimless, relatively speaking. But the, there is, I mean, there's always been like a good spirit there and there's still a really, really good spirit there. They all get on really well and they all like the football they play and they all like the manager. And it's not just in the team either, in, in the crowd as well, particularly this season. You know, Arsenal women have a supporters club, which is growing in terms of its membership and the kind of the chairs of that have done a really, really good job of coalescing people who go to the games and getting them all sitting together and singing and stuff like that so for the first time since you know I, I've been going to the women's games for about 25 years now and it's the first time like I could say there's an atmosphere mm. that players have songs and um, fans that go every week and that know the players and there's just like that bond has started to form um, and that might have happened anyway regardless of the team being good but I you know I do think that Probably the team coming good this season has attracted more people to go, and when you've got when you've got that kind of um, that group to go with, that that's what keeps you coming back. That's the difference between going to a game and thinking, "Oh, I enjoyed that. That was quite good," and then just not thinking about it for another three months. I think the first time I really noticed it was Birmingham away in the league this season. Yeah, that was yeah. I think the first time where it was audible that there was. It, it obviously didn't feel like a home game, but it yeah, yeah. it definitely didn't feel like an away game in terms of 
noise and crowd presence and stuff yeah yeah and that's it and and when when you get that kind of group of people together that that's exactly the other thing that's kind of grown a little bit is people going to away games so you know i've i've traveled with them for most of the games this season but you know you go somewhere like liverpool who uh, who play at tranmere um and there's you know there's a group of like 50 or 60 um arsenal fans who go everywhere who all sit together a lot of whom don't actually have any interest in the men mm. at all like just support arsenal women um in fact some of them support other men's teams which does happen but because they've found this kind of social element to it um have really started to follow and and obviously in women's football you're closer to the players and there's more intimacy and things like that so you go to a game you're guaranteed to be able to interact with the players and and it's it's just it's i think you know i think a lot of this is kind of coincidence um but it's all like really kind of bubbled together at the right time and and you get the sense that you know the the supporters feel for the players as well because they're on like first name basis with them and they see them all the time there's there, there is a vibe is exactly the word i'd use and it's it's kind of it's permeating everything at the moment which is really nice and and i should mention like quickly that sir chips keswick um the arsenal chairman who's not a well-liked man <laughs> at arsenal in general he's he's at most of the games and look i'm sure it's only a gesture but it's one that's really really noticed and really appreciated by the players and you know it's, it's not something he has to do really so that that's another like been a really nice touch this season you mentioned a couple of players there that I wanted to ask you about. First of all, mm. Leah Williamson. Second one was Daniela van der Donk. And the third mm. that we mentioned earlier is Vivian Midemar. Yeah. For me, massively impressive all season for very different reasons. Obviously, yeah. Vivian, top goal scorer in the league. Considering she's only 22, I think we were talking about yeah. Christine Sinclair a couple of weeks ago and actually looking at the numbers, I, I don't want to put too much pressure on her, but Midemar is someone that you can really easily see breaking that international goal-scoring record by the end yep. of her career, for example. She's been key. Daniela van der Donk I've been really impressed with, but you obviously watch a lot more of her. She's kind of played a different role because of the injuries this season. That was something I found really impressive. The third one, Leah Williamson, obviously you saw at the weekend how much that meant to her specifically, an Arsenal fan yeah. growing up. I listened to your interview with her on the Arsenal Women's, uh, the Ask Blog Women podcast, which is yeah. really, really interesting if people haven't listened to that go and check it um i asked Susie rack about her early in the season about obviously potential arsenal captain one day but maybe england captain as well what is she like to be around because she strikes me as such a leader already at some mm. at such a young age um so yeah i suppose in a very long-winded way have those three players been the kind of key or have they just been part of a real wider kind of core all three of those players have been really really key uh, i mean me to Obviously, she's yeah. doing stuff that just hasn't been done. And um, if she keeps going like this for another couple of years, like in in Arsenal terms, it's like up there with Kelly Smith, you know, this kind of record breaking and uh, her goals. And, you know, she, she's frankly, she's on a level above everyone um, in England um, at the moment and, and most players in the world. And, and she's such an interesting character because nothing phases her and you see it in her finishing. And it's the same when you talk to her. She's absolutely unflappable. Like absolutely everything is just completely straight back. The first time I interviewed her, I asked her about 
um, you know, the importance of the other Dutch players at the club. She was the last of the four Dutch players to join. I was like, oh, was that important? And she just went, no, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, she was like, I went to Germany when I was 18. There were no Dutch people there. Not important at all. Didn't didn't figure. And, and you know, when you're like, you're a little bit taken aback, but not in a bad way. And you think, oh, well, usually when you interview someone, you, you get the kind of, yeah, it was quite important. And, you know, the, the kind of the platitude, but you don't get that from Viv and stuff she said like about the golden boot she's just like I don't care I don't care about the golden boot I don't care about player of the year I'm not interested in any of that Danielle Vanderdonk yeah she started playing in a quite deep midfield role um, at the end of last season and because she's she'll forgive me for saying this she, she's scrappy she's not happy until she's had a fight with someone on the pitch quite frankly and um, she loves the tackle and she's very physical and she's very good in the air but yeah when Jordan Nobbs got injured you know she moved a little bit further forward and um she scored 12 13 goals this season and not one of them has been from further than 10 yards out she's turned into a real poacher and she really stepped up when jordan was injured as for leah leah is an absolute delight as a footballer and as a person i've i've spoken to her many times and um you know like her her family is incredible um as well they're all you can see you can see she's been well brought up and she absolutely i mean she should be pushing for england captain now it will happen in the future because as you say she is an absolute leader and she's 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 my favorite player to interview because you know she just instantly you can tell she thinks about the game so analytically because you know you speak to her like a minute after a game's finished and she's been running around and she's already got in her mind what happened tactically and she's very kind of self-analytical she'll understand what her part in the game was and you know she said to me after the game on Sunday she said that's the worst I've ever played for Arsenal she kind of said because I was so emotional um, because this means so much to me and honestly when you when you kind of speak to her like it's she's just turned 22 and um it's 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 crazy um it's absolutely crazy i certainly wasn't speaking and thinking like that when i was 22 yeah. years old and uh yeah absolutely i mean really she i mean kim little's the arsenal captain now and, and with good reason but nobody would would argue if it went to leah and i think maybe once steph horton's kind of career winds down a little bit which which isn't going to happen soon but she'll definitely take Steph's place I think she'll partner Steph at the centre of the England defence very soon and and I think once Steph isn't captaining England anymore it will be Leah she's she's an incredible character um, and a really really underrated footballer she's a top class centre half and I, I think it was a real shame she didn't get in the PFA team of the year because she really deserved it yeah um, I, th- I thought that was a little bit odd actually yeah, she doesn't quite get the credit she deserves, and I've not quite figured out why that is yet. But I think that's really going to reverse in a couple of years. Basically, once she breaks into England starting eleven, I think you know her reputation will grow, and she'll be in the PFA Team of the Year every year. Yeah, um, you know, a bit like Steph, who's Steph is is great, and she's a brilliant defender. I don't really think she should have been in the PFA Team of the Year this year, but. Mm. I think she was kind of in on reputation a little bit, which not to say she's had a bad season at all, but I, I think that will happen to Leah soon enough. I do think Leah will become like the poster girl for English women's football. Really quick one before you let you go. Obviously, mm. back in the Champions League next season. Yeah. Do you think this Arsenal squad is 
when everyone's fully fit, let's say, is ready to take on that Champions League. I mean, there's obviously some really, really strong teams in there. You mentioned Chelsea, um, who, well, well, won't be there next season. Nope. Um, But obviously Man City will be. Lyon, we had Wolfsburg, who were, they actually won the German Cup today against Freiburg Mm. and look set to win the double on Sunday. So they'll be there again. Yeah. How do you think this squad is set up for the Champions League? So the talent's there, definitely. I think the num well, the numbers at time of speaking are not. They they know the squad has to get bigger. And um that as as far as I know, that has already been addressed. And they've got some big players in the bag coming in. They know that squad needs to be bigger. They know, for example, they, they kind of had to ditch the FA Cup this year yeah. and they they really they took a defeat at Chelsea because they'd got to the League Cup final, which had taken a little bit more resource than I think they wanted it to, and they really wanted to win the league. And they they drew Chelsea away in the FA Cup, and they didn't ditch it, but it was very much like we can spare this. So they they couldn't quite cope with the whole scope of the domestic calendar. So the Champions League as well. I mean, it's worth pointing out that the Women's Champions League is straight knockout. So yeah. There isn't a group stage, so it's not quite six games before Christmas. Um, You might only get two, but um, depending on who you draw. But you know, with the travel and stuff like that, it it, they they need more players. They need numbers. Um, They know that they Joe deliberately went with a small squad with lots of players who can play lots of positions um, because he thought that would be best to form like a a really strong core and to go and win the league and I I think he's been proved right on that but if they want to compete on more than one front they need numbers um that that's well documented they make no secret of it and uh yeah the the kind of the addressing of that um started a, a little while ago actually well it's good to hear and obviously we're both arsenal fans but obviously there's been a lot more positive stuff coming out of the women's side of the club for the last <laughs> yeah. week or so especially with the was it the under they won the youth cup as well yeah and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the schools cup right yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, I mean, good vibes. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate this. We'd love to have you on another time, maybe. Um, My pleasure. Time. And you can check Tim out on Twitter, at Stilberto, and check his work on Blog. It's really good. Tim, thanks again, man. Take it easy. My pleasure. Okay, that's about all we've got time for for this edition of the Rabona podcast. Don't forget, we'll all be here on Monday, Musa, Michael and myself for our 50th podcast. Another reminder, if you do listen on iTunes, please give us a rating and a review, preferably five stars. It really helps. If you want to get in touch, you can email hello at rabonamag.com or you can tweet us at rabonamag. So have a great weekend and we'll be back with you on Monday. Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 